0: Welcome to the Ag Emerge Podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation.
1: Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Schaes.
0: And I'm your host, Monty Bottons. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. It's a true honor to get to speak with Dr. Don Huber, Professor Emeritus of Plant Pathology at Purdue University. You'll want to read Dr. Huber's full bio in the show notes. He's a pioneer in his field. His experience, knowledge, and understanding of everything involving plant pathology and physiology is simply remarkable. You know, the Aggie podcast is committed to asking the tough questions and seeking solutions. The work Dr. Huber began stemmed from one question he wanted to answer. Why crop rotation has such a dramatic effect on many of the plant diseases. That one question led to over 55 years of research into the study of soil, microbial ecology, microbial interactions, parasite relationships, and nutrient disease relationships. In 1997 and again in 2001, Monty heard Dr. Huber speak on topics including glyphosate, which spurred Monty on to eliminate glyphosate from his own farm. There's a lot of ground to cover in this conversation, so let's jump right in.
0: Well, welcome to this edition of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm truly honored uh, to be joined by Dr. Don Huber. I've known Don since 1997 and of the work that he's done pioneering many different things in plant uh, um, physiology and uh, uh, those kind of things. And I'm just so excited to have him here today. Welcome, Don. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's an honor for me also. Well, I I remember hearing you talk in 1997 and there was just a little bit of a hint towards a a glyphosate type of uh, uh could be some challenges and then uh, I remember repeat again in 2001 that uh um the alarm bells uh, need to be need to be rung and uh Just uh, because of of your work, uh, we've eliminated glyphosate from our own farm here in Illinois and being a no-tiller and having no glyphosate, those two words don't typically go in the same sentence, but that's partly your fault. Well, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) So, Don, uh, let's start from the beginning and i remember one of the stories you like to tell as you started out uh, your professor said you should take a look at take all in wheat and then <laughs> ever since then it's just been on the manganese front and that's led you to some many many amazing discoveries but tell us uh, tell us your story your why how you got started and and what's led you on this this path of discovery throughout your your lifetime well i grew up on a dairy farm and uh i went to college
2: i Studied uh, vocational agriculture. I had hoped to get back to the farm at some point in time, but uh, vocational ag was going to be a stepping stone to that. I got uh, involved in a student job trying to get through college. It it was a little better than digging graves, and people weren't dying fast enough to keep me in school. So uh, I got a job in the plant pathology department, that was a tremendous opportunity and Dr. Art Finley kind of took me under his wing and said we'd like you to go on for a master's degree and I uh, told him I'd like to do that. I'd uh, get a waiver from the Army for reporting for active duty for a year and a half to, to do that which they granted and he asked me uh, what I'd really like to study. And I said, well, I'd really like to find out why crop rotation has such a dramatic effect on many of the plant diseases. And so from trying to answer that question, uh, uh, what, 55 years ago or so, uh, turn, turned out to be a, a study of soil microecology and microbial interactions, host parasite relationships and nutrient disease relationships, all of that, all kind of coming under uh, uh, to answer that question or to understand how we could utilize the benefits of some of those programs. And of course, we see how cover cropping and everything all fits into the program. Uh, so nutrition and disease has become uh kind of the, the basis of a lot of my studies. And then uh, I seem to always get off on a lot of tangents, but they're uh, sometimes even a little more, more exciting than the, the basic program, but all contributing to it. Glyphosate was one of those, that uh, I thought uh, we'd use 15 years to of. Uh, fairly intense and systematic study to understand the take-all disease of wheat and the ecology of of the organisms and the uh, system there because that organism, the take-all fungus, Monomyces graminus, is uh, pretty much uh, indigenous to all soils throughout the world and uh, yet you have severe disease and almost no disease depending on the ecology, even though the pathogen is present. So that uh, uh, when we had developed that, uh, we were trying to look at all the systems that were involved, all the conditions that were involved with that disease. And in that 15-year period, we gave them all a test, trying to find the common denominator. Well, it turns out that the common denominator is manganese, both from a virulent standpoint for the pathogen being able to immobilize it and induce essentially uh, uh, an AIDS-like condition in that localized area where you shut down the plants and defense mechanism by oxidizing manganese, or the pathogen does, to... uh, uh, using that information then on making sure that there's a sufficiency for the plant to maintain its defense. Well, we had that pretty well worked out and uh, hadn't found any exceptions to it. And here glyphosate comes along in 1974 and uh, looking at some of the weed scientist studies and, and that and using this new innovative uh, product that uh, kind of a miracle herbicide in that it killed everything, did a really good job of cleaning up uh, research alleyways and a few other things. But then when you uh, seeded over that alley the next year with, with a cereal crop, wheat or barley, uh, all of a sudden you had a, a very distinct increase in takeoff. And so pursuing that from a curiosity standpoint, finding out what that interaction was, has led to another uh, 25 or 30 years of research, uh, looking at the effect of ag chemicals on a lot of the soil environment, the soil uh, microecology that's involved as it relates both to soil structure and fertility, as well as to uh, plant disease. And, uh, so that's kind of, uh, where we've gone with that, uh, particular aspect. And a lot of those principles that we've come to understand through that research are just as applicable to many other systems.
0: So it all started with being curious, you know, and, and, well, uh, and follow on questions. Why is this happening? In fact, uh, the curiosity aspects sometimes
2: have been more, more fruitful than the things that I really focused on and uh, wrote grant proposals for and everything else. Uh, it was those little side effects that uh, you said, well, how come this is happening when everything else points in a different direction or in a, one direction? And you say, well, how does this fit into the picture? uh and uh that's that's kind of the way science works anyway. The real breakthroughs are the the little curiosity type projects that that you take on just to satisfy uh the system to to see how it fits
0: rather than to really make a focus of it. See on my farm, I call those mistakes Don. You, know, you learn more in your mistakes at least, uh, or where something didn't happen exactly the way you think. And, and, uh, well, you just, you, you take that and you, you learn from it. And I think it just, it, it, I, I think the best researcher also, uh, researchers also have the dirtiest boots.
2: Well, you, uh, if you don't follow up on those mistakes as you call them or the side effects, uh, Pretty soon you don't make much progress in science. When we start censoring and trying to to suppress rather than understand, we lose the whole focal point of of progress.
1: We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show.
0: I think one of the the things that I saw that was a really dramatic representation of this, and and it really boils down to the the glyphosate effect in in one slide is when you autoclave the soil and you you show the glyphosate applied to a plant uh, with autoclave soil versus a plant without it, and then a plant that had just regular soil and, and had glyphosate, and where that enables the the glyphosate maybe stunted the autoclaved or uh, soil, but it it definitely died inside of the standard soil, so that shows that disease mechanism feedback loop so the glyphosate really if from my understanding and and please correct uh, uh, as appropriate, but the glyphosate itself is just disabling the plant 's immune system or defense mechanisms, allowing pathogens within the soil then to attack and, and that's the that's what kills the plant is that is that a fair way to say that don
2: yeah you really can't can't kill a plant with glyphosate and sterile soil doesn't matter whether it's autoclave soil or gamma radiated soil uh, it's those organisms that are responsible for the herbicidal activity the glyphosate like you say gives it a bad case of AIDS uh, to shut down the defense mechanisms, the shikimate pathway and several other pathways that are responsible for that uh, defense and resistance mechanism in the plant. So uh, it's, a, it's a multifaceted type of herbicidal mechanism. It's not just shutting down a primary mechanism. It's the shikimate pathway is secondary
0: metabolism. And then because you're changing that plant's ability to resist um, pathogenic organisms, then we're also changing the suppression of those organisms in the soil. So haven't you and others found that when glyphosate's applied that you'll get a tenfold increase of manganese oxidizing organisms, which makes manganese unavailable to the plant and, and is more susceptible to Fusarium phytophthora species? So we kind of inverse, we go from aerobic to anaerobic species switch when glyphosate's applied. Is that, is that what's right, That's
2: pretty, not, not all just anaerobic, anaerobic, but it's, uh, you stimulate the pathogens mm-hmm. and it's very toxic to the beneficial organisms. Glyphosate's a patented antibiotic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't recognize that, but uh, if you look at some of the studies on soil structure as it relates to glyphosate, you'll see that those organisms that are responsible for soil aggregation, very sensitive to glyphosate. So that your water infiltration uh, is reduced. The soil structure overall, the oxygen relationships or gas exchange relationships in the soil are all impeded. It's uh, a unique chemical that, that has Um, multiple functions besides just the chelating of the minerals that it was initially patented
0: to do. So when you're talking on that um, selection of how long is that stimulatory effect to last in the soil Uh, and I realize that'll vary by moisture status, heat, you know, soil type and those kind of things. What would be kind of a range of that Uh, stimulation of beneficial or killing of beneficial stimulating pathogenic species within the soil
2: well it's activity glyphosate can be a very persistent chemical as uh, CSIRO and a number of other organizations and in my own research uh, we found that uh, you could account for 20 or 25 years of glyphosate application still being there in a clay soil or silt loam soil, good soil, uh, so that it, there's very little degradation. The problem with glyphosate is that it's a synthetic chemical and the, it's the carbon phosphite lyase bond that is missing, or enzyme that's missing in most of these organisms because they haven't had an opportunity to really uh, do the mutations and that are required to bring about its full degradation. Now there are organisms that do that but uh, they're just not common in a lot of our soils and the other thing that we find when you get into the the clay loam uh, uh, and even uh, heavier silt loam soils the glyphosate becomes entrapped within the clay lattice structure so that it's not as available for degradation. We'll see a lot of uh, breakdown to just AMPA. Well, AMPA from a biocidal standpoint is one and a half times more toxic than the glyphosate to start with. That's just a simple uh, methyl decarboxylation usually and and, uh, it kind of stops there. And so uh, it can be very persistent. Uh, it may not be toxic as an herbicide or even as a, a biocide uh, once it's chelated or entrapped within the clay products, but uh, the desorption from the soil can can be uh, observed after phosphate fertilizer applications and other other uh, environmental changes, so that. What may not be toxic to a subsequent crop today, uh, maybe next year as you fertilize a little differently or have some changes in environment, you'll see that uh, the desorption of the glyphosate releases a very toxic compound to uh, non-glyphosate resistant materials
0: or organisms there. I remember this research that uh, you, and I think it was it, um, Rome held and bot were working on, on the desorption of glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, that's rather interesting because, well, first off manure that's used in organic situations comes from typically conventional farms and the conventional farms will typically have some concentration of glyphosate within that manure. So there is, there is a little bit of load of in the manure and that'll vary depending on the, on the foodstuffs of the animals. But the interesting part is, is we're applying so much manure in organic situations to get the nitrogen requirements that we need to grow a crop that we're typically over applying phosphorus, which then at those high part per million levels in the soil, I believe you were showing that that causes more desorption or getting the glyphosate to unattach from these clay lattice layers and become in the soil solution to where it can affect uh, the growing crop or weeds in in that uh in that desorbed state is that is that the mechanism that's happening there is high amounts of phosphorus the higher the amounts of phosphorus, the more release of glyphosate from the clay well it's
2: more it's the phosphorus that that brings about that desorption uh mm-hmm. the uh the manures I know uh several studies that have looked at uh the amount of glyphosate in various manures if you're applying chicken. Manure or are the uh, compost and whatnot? Uh, you apply four or five ton of that per acre to get your nitrogen rates up and other mineral levels up, uh, and you're getting very close to the herbicidal level that would be that would be applied if you're uh, just applying it directly as an herbicide. So that there can be an eff- some effects there. Uh. One of the interesting effects that we've, one of the tangents you might say that we got off onto was, was uh, high abortion, miscarriage rates in horses and cattle, and uh, pseudo pregnancies in pigs, and that type of thing. Uh, initially, it was observed primarily where they had used high rates of chicken manure for pastures, and uh, this was a little hard to uh, understand why the what relationship the chicken manure would have until we also looked at the uh, amount of glyphosate that was in there and the effect of glyphosate then on, on uh, fertility in the animal and also on retention of the pregnancy so that uh, we could trace it directly back to that uh, chicken manure that had been applied, even though... A lot of other factors were uh, confusing part of that early understanding, but that's really where it boiled down to was the uh, uptake and effect of the glyphosate on the uh, androgenic and estrogenic hormones and that, which are at, at very low levels of intake, but having a very dramatic, impact then on fertility and especially on miscarriage and uh, productivity
0: from that standpoint. Uh. So it sounds like we need to start a list here, Dr. Huber. Um, So far, and we've just gotten started today, it has an effect on soil aggregate structure, right? So uh, soil bulk density, the ability of soil to hold a load, to absorb nutrients, you know, the air porosity, which then would affect other beneficial microbes in the soil, so there's an effect on the soil. There's effect on um, uh, plants, they have to process it, they have to, you know, uh, mineral nutrient deficiencies associated there. We have long-term effects where it's staying in the soil, in the clay lattice layers, 25 plus years, who knows. And we've got issues with um, abortions, getting pregnancy, endocrine disruption, those kind of things. So we're just off to a real, real uh, easy start here.
2: Yeah, there are lawsuits uh, on cancer are uh, yep. uh, pointing out uh, some of those factors, actually 32 of our major diseases that are many of them approaching uh, epidemic or, uh, status there are inflammatory bowel diseases uh, various cancers and uh, autism those the blockage of of the uh, aromatic amino acid synthesis in the gut by uh, glyphosate is is a very critical factor for many of those diseases so uh cancer's gotten uh kind of the publicity because of the the level of uh, awards that the juries are making, but we have many other health factors from a chronic standpoint that haven't been uh, entered into the legal realm yet, but probably will. I see parkinson's now is is coming in primarily from uh, paraquat glyphosate has similar activity on parkinson's in and that uh, metabolism. So uh, if there's any money left after the, after the cancer, there'll probably be a few attorneys that'll start looking at some of these other uh, situations where we have uh, the scientific, or uh, connected the dots physiologically with the disease and, and that uh, from a legal standpoint also. There, it's not an acute toxin it's a chronic toxin and accumulates in the body just as it accumulates in the plant in the meristematic tissues and reproductive tissues so uh, it can be around for a long time and its effects can be
0: magnified with persistent use or consistent use so let's say miraculously Don we stop. All manufacture distribution application of glyphosate today, so <laughs> you wave the wand it 's done. We have atmospheric load of uh, glyphosate, which I remember you uh, Sharon is like two parts per billion or parts per trillion i 'm sorry i don't remember um, order of magnitude there, and then we have groundwater issues, um, we have the soil issues, and we have accumulation within our own tissues and probably epigenetic effects to our offspring and such, how, how long does it take to, you know, uh, it's a very diverse, robust biological system here on planet earth that has overcome many things in the past. What does that, what does it look like to overcome and, and, and get it out of the soil atmosphere and and water? What, how long is that going to take or what, is there ways that we can help to bioremediate that and things we can do to accelerate that process? Well, the length of
2: time, is, if we just sat back and, and let nature do it alone without uh, giving a little nudge and some directions and, and that, uh, we're talking generation or two. But uh, that would be in our heavier soils, our clay. The higher the clay content, the lower the pH, uh, the longer your persistence. But uh uh there are several groups that have some, some products that look really excellent as far as degradation of glyphosate. Most of them uh involve cock- biological cocktails rather than just a single organism, even mm-hmm. though know, a few single organisms can uh break it down to, to its elemental components, but but uh uh, when you look at those and, and the effectiveness that, that you have, uh, Monica Kruger, a veterinary pathologist at Leipzig University, has shown that uh, uh, humic acid, uh, phobic acid, and uh, raw sauerkraut juice, several things will move it out of the animal with uh, raw sauerkraut juice and that's primarily uh, primary lactobacillus species that are going to be present there. Uh, you can have full degradation in the rumen. Uh, and consequently, as Monica has shown in her research, you can eliminate the chronic botulism that is pretty rampant in a lot of our dairies internationally, uh, where they're using the protein extract from uh, fermentation for alcohol, the DGGE products, that uh, those can be quite high in glyphosate. We've just concentrated it. It hasn't been uh, broken down at all in that fermentation process for alcohol. So, uh, but there are uh, products. Uh, there are, uh, I think, five groups that I'm aware of that have. A lot of preliminary research that, that is showing uh, some rather remarkable degradation as far as soil application. Uh, Martha Carlin's group in Colorado, uh, Frank Dean, uh, Ken Hamilton's in Utah, uh, several others that in that process are are in the process of. Uh, looking ahead uh, to removing that very uh, powerful toxicant and nutrient immobilizer from the soil. Uh, Several of those in their field studies have shown pretty much full degradation or at least getting it down below the detection level of uh, part per trillion uh, in six to nine months. So It's not something that can't be done. It's just something that we need to focus on. And it doesn't do much good to clean it up one year and then dump it on there again the next year. And, of course, we have more and more glyphosate-resistant weeds. It's not just glyphosate we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, a series of, of different chemicals. That we need to consider in that that aspect also, but glyphosate's probably the most persistent, uh, and also has the broadest scope of activity from uh, simple mineral chelation, immobilization mobilization to its antibiotic effects that then affect interact with uh, not just the minerals but also a lot of the other physiological processes that are involved in disease and, and uh, overall health, plant health, environmental health, and animal and human health interactions. There's, uh, uh, we tried to point out and focus on in a new book that's just been out on uh, uh, synthetic pesticide use in Africa to pull a lot of those interactions together and an understanding of what we're seeing relative to the cause and uh,
0: relationships involved in that. So there is hope in the, in regards to um, uh, breaking it down in the soil. And and it is a complex process because, like you said, there's an intermediate step in the AMPA so you have one, one group of organisms to take it from glyphosate to AMPA and another group, I think, from AMPA to the benign, you know, phosphorus and wow. other carbon components. But then they require supporting communities around them because, like you said, they're not very prevalent in the soil. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's almost a, commu- a two-step and a communal requirement to make that happen. But also, and you have to feed them too. So, my understanding, use of cover crops is is a great way to assist in the degradation too, as we're putting, you know, carbon into the soil to feed the organisms off of the cash crop cycle. But then, of course, what do we terminate the cover crops with? So, <laughs> have to be well, have to be well, that we're not terminating. We, we yeah, we commonly shoot ourselves in the foot <laughs>
2: <laughs> when we use glyphosate as uh, as a terminator. Then then you undo what you've been trying to do to start with because of that antibiotic activity and yeah. it's systemic nature. Uh, when you're looking at the soil and soil remediation, uh, you apply a systemic chemical like glyphosate on the plant and 20% of that's gonna move right out into the soil uh, from for its antibiotic activity, change the soil balance. So really important to look at the whole system rather than just looking for a silver bullet that that uh does one thing and and
0: uh forget all the others. So my my dad often asked me he says, "Okay, we know about glyphosate and how bad it is. But we know about it because so much of it's used. You know, it's it's so ubiquitous so many millions of acres and it's had a lot of attention applied to it." He says, how do you know that what you're substituting in place of glyphosate isn't just as bad, if not worse? So that's, uh, if there's ever a person to ask, I've, I've got him here on the podcast. Uh, that's my dad's million-dollar question. He's always wanted to know the answer to it. He says, okay, great, you know glyphosate's bad, but if you use something else, how do you know it's not worse?
2: Well, uh, you, have, you have to look at what the substitutes are. You look at the paraquat situation now. of course, we know it has some acute toxicity, so it's usually handled a little more carefully than glyphosate, which was advertised as being non-toxic to everything. But uh, uh, the only thing that that doesn't have the shikimate pathway are mammals. Everything else that's living has a shikimate pathway. And uh, there are some alternatives that are becoming available. one of the problems that you have is that it's uh glyphosate's very cheap it's easy to make it's uh uh competitive with about 200 companies making glyphosate now so that uh there's a lot of competition there and replacing it from an economic standpoint on on a broadacre basis is a little more difficult there are products that uh where the economics could be justified a little easier. And uh that would be for parks and recreation areas for schools and and uh those situations where you have high contact with our pets and animals as well as with with our children and and that, that we can justify a lot of the alternatives fairly easily and and the economic difference isn't as great as as it used to be. I had uh, 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 some interactions looking at some of these materials and there are five or six competitive materials that are non-toxic and quite effective. Uh, Contact Organics, new one that was just registered, is one that's very impressive. Uh, they do require, uh, I think, most of the alternatives require uh, uh, a little more water and a little better contact on the plant. Glyphosate has been, been a great tool for us because it's systemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Squirt it and get it on the plant, and it distributes itself throughout the plant. It, it moves right down to the roots as you read on the bottle. It'll uh, say... Roundup kills the roots and, and that was certainly a very important tool for us from uh an herbicide standpoint or weed control standpoint i uh, don't know of uh anyone that doesn't uh recognize that weeds are a competitor and a challenge for us from a production standpoint but sometimes we tie our hands behind our back or at least one arm uh and say, we're only going to do it this way. We've got a number of tools for weed control. And uh, if we eliminate tillage, eliminate uh, several of the other common ways, it doesn't mean that if we say, well, tillage, I remember, and bit of university of Nebraska being asked uh, at a meeting, well, how do we get rid of lamb squatter? or not lamb's quarter, but uh, mare's tail. Uh, it's becoming a real serious problem for us uh, in our no-till production systems. And uh, uh, and said, well, have you ever heard of the plow? And everything went silent for a little while. <laughs> the uh, emphasis has been on no-till, but, but when we talk about tillage, it doesn't mean that you have to beat the soil to death but and it doesn't have to be continuous but we have soils that aren't erosive uh, or very limited erosion we can use some other techniques for that doesn't mean we have to throw out the whole thing certainly uh, no-till has been a real tool for us Uh, cover cropping in a no-till situation becomes a very important weed control tool just nutrition becomes uh, uh, important in that. If, if you get uh, McCammon's book on why your weeds grow, he has all of those tables just showing uh, uh, you find the weeds where you have nutrient and certain nutrient deficiencies, especially calcium, uh, uh, potassium, some of the other nutrients that are very... Uh, common because it gives the weeds which have quite often a deeper root system and better absorptive capacity a uh, competitive advantage over a lot of our crops. So we need to look at the overall toolbox and not just say yeah I, I'm going to just focus on one thing and, and that's going to fit all of my uh, situations. But uh, if you're in a monocrop Culture, as many of our uh, soils are in the Midwest now, it's corn or soybeans or corn and soybeans in rotation. It's uh, uh, we need to, to say, well, maybe we need to look at uh, once in a while, use some of these other tools that that we can use, and and not uh, just say, well, the religion says it there's uh no tolerance for any of this other, but uh maybe once in a while we need to, uh, uh uh remember how we used to do it and do that incorporation that merging of the systems rather than uh being so limited uh and that's one of the things in organic that uh becomes more difficult for you because some of those rules and regulations aren't uh, necessarily scientifically based, but more to uh, uh, minimize the competition that it might otherwise be from a conventional standpoint. And so we need, need to continuously evaluate Uh, what these factors are and how they work how what's the ecology how are we managing that ecology when we farm and uh, look at the alternatives as they uh, exist there.
0: So you mentioned some others that are out there on chemistries just to kind of kind of get your rundown of other chemistries we should be aware of that are problematic that maybe haven't gotten the the same amount of attention yet. One of those you did mention was Paraquat. I would assume that's one, would that would be one. uh and another one. ammonia, that'd be one. So that's uh, Ignite, Rely, Liberty. Uh, what's one, another one? Is Glufosin on your list?
2: Uh, atrazine is fairly limited in its uh, chelating ability. All of our herbicides are mineral chelators. That's how they work. We may call them ALS inhibitors or photosynthetic inhibitors or chikimate inhibitors or whatnot, but they do that by chelating or by immobilizing a specific nutrient. 2,4 D, for instance, copper chelator, uh, Puma, Puma gold, uh, Tordon, all copper chelators. Well, if uh, if you don't recognize that 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 mineral, essential mineral, for uh, from a physiologic standpoint, is going to be reduced in its availability to the crop, and compensate for that, you're going, you can have uh, less production and less quality in your production just because of that mineral deficiency that's induced by the herbicide. You know, uh, Ian Evans uh, would point out to his growers in Alberta and the prairies, low copper uh, prairie soils in Canada and northern tier of the states that said, said if you're going to use Puma or Puma Gold or those copper chelating herbicides on these low copper soils, make sure that you get out there with some blue vitrol or copper sulfate. <clears throat> every four or five years to get that availability in the soil or else you're going to have a lot of ergot and a lot of uh, male sterility that induces the conditions for that ergot in your grain. Uh, We haven't recognized that function with most of our herbicides, but certainly with glyphosate, when you see the flashing... uh, after application, that's because you've immobilized magnesium and manganese and iron and, and copper and zinc and all of your cations. Uh, and a study that was done on sugarcane within six hours after glyphosates applied to that 10 or 12-foot high sugarcane stock, you have more than 100 times more glyphosate in the The stock tissue then uh, would be required to immobilize all of the unbound cations in that plant. So within that six hour period of time, you have a 90% reduction in uh, manganese and iron. (laughs) You have about a, excuse me, 35% reduction in zinc. <clears throat> well, those are all critical elements far from a physiologic standpoint from a uh, disease resistance <coughs> standpoint also. so it's important uh, that uh, we look at the impact of these chemicals on on the ecology, on the system uh, that we have. The broader the chelating ability of the herbicide, and that's why we mentioned glufosinate and paraquat, glyphosate, some of those that have multiple minerals that uh, are immobilized in the plant and in the soil, Uh, we'll see, see their impact on a broader Base than we see with uh, 2,4 D, for instance, which is primarily just a copper chelator. But uh, uh, those would be you know, the determining factors for how do we compensate, how do we address these side effects, uh, and still have the capability to use some of these tools in our production system.
0: So why do you think, um, and we, we can, you know, talk, talk a while on, the, um, on, on all of the documentation behind this, and, and we'll share some resources there in the podcast notes that you think would be great for us to share, but I want to talk to you a little bit about what it's been like for you to go through, um, you know, being the person who's sounding the warning and um, getting a lot of shots taken at you. Uh, yeah, why, is, why is glyphosate so controversial? Uh, it would be one. And, and, and then why have, why do you think people have been so um, adamantly opposed to, to some of the things that you've been trying to warn people of?
2: Well, you follow the money, for one thing. It's been a powerful tool for us from a production standpoint because it's, uh, after it went off patented, it became very cheap. It does the job that it was designed to do or that it was patented to do from an herbicidal standpoint. It's, uh, so you're touching some, some big pocketbooks. Uh, you're talking billions of dollars uh, invested in the chemical and also in its use, uh, half a billion pounds per year are applied in the U.S. alone. You have it not just in, you know, only half of that's in agriculture. The other half's in forestry and uh, parks and recreation, utility right away, rights of way. So uh, <laughs> it has some, a lot of players that are involved that would be impacted directly if if it should be banned or restricted or limited in those capacities. I notice Bayer is limiting it to uh, non-residential sales uh, next year, but uh, you follow the dollars and and you see uh, what happens. Uh, Now, as you go on down the road a little ways, and you see what happens when they lie about some of these side effects are misrepresent the the side effects when you look at the huge uh, settlements or are, are awards that have been made for the cancer non-hodgkin's lymphoma uh cancer settlements and uh four that have gone to trial you you have to uh recognize that you're stepping on some people's feet uh in that capacity, but their consequences also. To not recognizing that maybe that nudge to the toe would have been better than a two billion dollar award to two people for uh, uh, misrepresenting the 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 uh, safety of these products or their effects. Yes, I've I've uh, kind of been become used to. Uh, swimming in troubled waters. Most of my career, my first paper that I published uh, after uh, for my plant pathology career was not accepted uh, very well. It was just a car. It was just a form of nitrogen hypothesis from a disease predisposition standpoint and. Uh, I remember for a 10-page manuscript I one of the reviewers uh responded to that I don't think he read the manuscript I think it was just that I was challenging the carbon nitrogen ratio hypothesis that had become doctrine for the profession and uh I had a twenty-seven-page response. My manuscript was only ten pages long that I'd <laughs> submitted for publication of, of a hypothesis, and uh, uh, I remember his conclu- concluding science or concluding sentence in that paragraph was: "This young whippersnapper needs to recognize that if he's going to make any progress in this." Uh, Profession, he needs to recognize that uh, he can't just step on everybody's toes that have dedicated their life to to developing these uh, theories and hypotheses. Well, uh, that kind of started my career off and it's continued uh, in many ways through that process. And the controversies also have helped to bring out... Uh, Uh, get other people involved. in looking at the data, Uh, I received the, uh, for that manuscript, when I published, sent it in for publication in another journal, I got the uh, best award from young scientists for that one, where it was uh, totally rejected. So you have to realize that You ruffle some feathers, but hopefully you can stimulate some thought and some ideas and uh, get the additional information that's needed uh, and some verification of of that. Certainly without verification, uh, it's just an opinion or an idea that's out there. It doesn't matter how much what your statistics show. Uh, it's not accepted until it's verified and replicated. And uh, so I've welcomed that opportunity. And a lot of that controversy brings that replication and verification to, to the front. Uh, you know, 10 years after that first paper, I was asked by uh, the same society that that had rejected the paper to write the review article on it, because when it was published, it stimulated enough research that uh, there was enough, there were enough publications then to develop it into a pretty good review article and establish it as a a factor for the profession. I think you have to just ignore those, accept them as uh, those criticisms as uh, having some value, not always valid, but but having some value, and you also consider the source. Uh, so it, uh, I was trained as an intelligence analyst and spent a lot of my time with the Department of Defense in that capacity, and other areas and you always look at the source and so when the criticism starts coming in you you say well where's the money and and uh who did i step whose toes did i step on this time and then you go forward and, and uh hope that that uh there'll be value from that discussion and controversy it gets a little hard at times when you uh have someone that would request uh, $25,000 from uh, a company to shut you up. And then uh, uh, you get some of those death thr- threats and some of those things that uh, that pursue. But just still, as the sheriff told me, uh, he said, you just wear a smaller target and move a little faster. I'll find. Uh, uh, sometimes you can do that. Sometimes it doesn't work quite so well uh, on it. But I've had an exciting career, one that uh, I still pursue. I feel privileged to still be able to discuss some of these things with you. I hope I can still be of service and uh, for a longer period, and and share some of the insights I've been able to understand and the satisfaction that I've had uh, in the career that I've had, I would encourage young people to consider agriculture as its the basic infrastructure of any society. And as we gain greater knowledge and greater understanding of how to manage this ecology that we call agriculture, uh, I hope they, new people, our young scientists, find as greater reward and satisfaction as I have in my career. It's been uh, uh, a challenge that has uh, been worth every effort that I've put into it, and one that uh, I still find that same thrill in satisfying the
0: curiosity. I'm Um, so thankful that when you were that young student, you had that experience because that experience taught you, really, really shaped what you've been as part of this leader in regards to this glyphosate issue because you're not afraid to to publish something out there that might be controversial that, yes, it's this big hubbub at the beginning, and everybody's against you and those kind of things but but you understand that it, it's going to you're going to find true scientists through that that are going to do like you said true science you know a hypothesis can be replicated uh, or or the the science can be done again and again to verify that what you're doing so i mean that's a way that you're you're finding those other open-minded people out there to duplicate your work had had you not had that first experience well, that first experience with that rejection of that
2: paper, I was afraid my promotion and my salary was going to be impacted. Uh, at the time, you know, we had a published in Paris type of uh, a philosophy, and and uh, I was afraid that that might do me. Uh, and yet I've appreciated that experience many times, like you say, uh, especially in reviewing others' papers. And I get a lot of papers to review. I uh wear out a lot of a lot of pencils or or track changes process not to be hypercritical but to hopefully uh make that individual look better and uh i submit those to get those as suggestions uh for them to consider and when i review an article not as uh uh drop dead type of uh a requirement but as a consideration uh, that's probably a result of that first paper and that 27 pages uh, of writing telling me to write for
0: science fiction rather than for plant pathology <laughs> <laughs> it just shows you how everything that we think it, the, <clears throat> the worst things are the things that we know for sure are true and uh, um, and then find out that they aren't because they, they hold us back for so long but no, I I I've I appreciated getting to to know you and, and meet with you several times over the years. Uh, all the wonderful um, information that you've given to us as farmers, and now it's uh, it, it, the farmer has a choice, right? They can continue to do what they've always done, and and think and just skip, dis- you know, just dismiss it as well. That's what I got to do because that's the cost structure. Or, that's what I got to do to to survive in farming, but. What would you and how would you encourage them to to think differently or, or, or do differently in regards to, you know, uh, crop production, glyphosate and, and those kind of things? Just, you know, saying enough's enough. How, how would you how would you appeal to that farmer to to do the right thing? Well, a lot of a lot of growers,
2: I get a comment quite often while I'll be out in the field and, and they'll just say, well, my crops aren't as vigorous as they used to be. And, uh, you know, on, a, on an annual basis, you can say, well, yeah, this, this year it was a little colder soil or a little uh, higher residue on the surface, tying up some of the nutrients or dry conditions or that type of thing uh, going on. But uh, they don't recognize the impact of a lot of these chemicals and a lot of these things that we're doing. And they do a lot of things because their neighbors do it rather than uh, looking at some of the more innovative growers that are out there and saying, yeah, I may not be able to do everything like they're doing, but what parts of that are important that I ought to be incorporating or thinking about in my own operation? I think if uh, a basic principle that they should focus on is how do I build the system, the ecology, so that I can be a proper steward for the inheritance that I'll, I hope to leave for my grandchildren or great grandchildren or whatnot, and still be a survivor today? And I think as as we look at those things, we've forgotten a lot of the tools that used to be in a standard toolbox because. We've just focused in one or two areas and not realized that, yeah, there are a lot of alternatives that we could use. We, we could uh, do a little subsoiling uh, every three or four years, five years, uh, get a little distribution. We don't have to, to do everything and to the full extent, but we can uh, change the mix of our cover crop uh, program so that uh, we have both those manganese reducers or oxidizers, the environment to tolerate those, to get those ecological niches established without uh, feeling that we have to have the whole system change and just doing one thing or two things, but we can have the intermixing, mixing, and, and that's what the ecology is. It's really a very dynamic system of of interactions chemistry wise biologically and and uh, crop wise that uh, all comes together and it's not all just just one pathway it's really that integrated uh, system that gives us the end product that we're looking for and the both the abundance of of product but also especially the nutritional quality and other quality factors that make the crop really usable and enjoyable from
0: a societal standpoint well i i appreciate that we need to think about doing what's best not always what's what's the most and uh that's uh that's Uh, key i think
2: as gabe brown brown said uh farm for profit not for yield and you have to have a little of both in that uh, process
0: but yep and i think if you get enough people uh doing that um it'll become more accepted to do it too so yeah. no we we've come a long way we've integrated livestock we've got small grains we've got uh, cover crops for grazing uh a lot of things and it it's making a difference and it's amazing to see what you can grow with less inputs and and still do a high quality job so I appreciate your your leadership your your coaching through the years and and really bringing all of the unintended consequences of different approaches to farming to to our knowledge because now that uh, when you share these effects and and what's going on there we've got a choice to make and uh, that's all we can do is we can share that there's that there's negative impacts of of glyphosate or other types of herbicides that a farmer just may not be aware of and if they are and realize that most stuff that is on the fringe is met with controversy at first but eventually gets proven right you know now's the time to make a change and uh, because one or two generations away doesn't happen any faster by putting off the change to 10 years from now so got to change as soon as we can and and uh, get on to a more holistic approach to farming. So well
2: thanks for sharing. Thanks for this opportunity. It was uh, great to have
0: you here, Dr. Huber and uh, great to see you again. Oh well, many thanks.
1: I hope you gleaned some great pieces of information in this conversation between Monty and Dr. Huber. There's so much we continue to learn about functioning soils and their systems and processes. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there, you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.